From New York, this is Democracy Now! The collective punishment of Palestinian civilians through the unlawful use of force by Israel is a war crime. The deliberate denial of medicine, fuel, food and water to the residents of Gaza is tantamount to genocide. As the death toll from Israel's bombardment of Gaza exceeds 22,000, South Africa files a case at the International Court of Justice in The Hague accusing Israel of genocide. We'll speak with international human rights lawyer Francis Boyle. I believe also South Africa will win uh, an order from the World Court against Israel to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide against the Palestinians. Then, as we enter 2024, a pivotal election year, we look at how the powerful lobby group APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, is set to spend more than $100 million against progressive Congress members critical of Israeli human rights violations in Palestine, including the only Palestinian-American member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of the Palestinian and cho- Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why, what I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. This comes as polls show a majority of U.S. voters support a ceasefire in Gaza. We'll speak with Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept, about his new book, The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll in Gaza from Israel's 12-week bombardment has now topped 22,000. Over 200 Palestinians have been killed in the past 24 hours. In one of the deadliest incidents, an Israeli strike on home in central Gaza killed 15 people. This comes as the Biden administration has bypassed Congress again to approve selling Israel nearly $150 million in artillery munitions. Over the weekend, the Israeli Defense Forces announced it would withdraw some of its troops in northern Gaza, while saying the attack on Gaza will continue throughout the year. On Sunday, on New Year's Eve, one 12-year-old Palestinian in a Rafah refugee camp reflected on the events of the past year. This year is a nightmare for every child in Gaza, for every man and woman, for every elderly man and woman in Gaza. God willing, in 2024, I wish when I wake up on January 1st to discover that this was all a dream, to wake up at home on January 1st, for the war to end, for our suffering to end, for this tragedy to end. I wish for everything to go back to how it used to be. I wish that we could go back to our homes. I wish this is all a dream. Every day we wake up and pray it is all a dream, rather a nightmare. Unfortunately, it is reality, a bitter reality. 
Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces have killed at least five Palestinians. More than 320 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. Seven Palestinian prisoners have also died in Israeli custody since October 7th, raising new questions about conditions inside Israeli jails. The most recent prisoner death occurred on Monday. South Africa's filed a case at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. In its filing, South Africa said Israel's war on Gaza is, quote, genocidal in character, unquote, and that Israel is intending to, quote, destroy Palestinians in Gaza as a part of the broader Palestinian national, racial and ethnical group, unquote. South Africa accused Israel of violating the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which Israel has signed on to. We'll have more on this story after headlines. Israel's Supreme Court has dealt Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu a setback by striking down a controversial new law that rolled back some of the high court's power. Netanyahu's broad effort to weaken the judiciary sparked massive protests across Israel last year that deeply divided the country. On Sunday, a former member of Netanyahu's cabinet, Galit Distel Atbaryan, issued a rare public apology for her role in creating divisiveness inside Israel before October 7th. She said, quote, I was one of those people that caused the state to be weakened that harmed people. I created a split. I created a rift and I created tension. And this tension brought weakness and this weakness in many ways brought massacre, she said. Protests against Israel's war on Gaza are continuing. Here in New York, a caravan of cars with Palestinian flags blocked traffic headed to John F. Kennedy International Airport Monday. Meanwhile, in Pasadena, California, protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza briefly halted the Rose Bowl parade. Tension keeps escalating in the Red Sea. An Iranian warship has reportedly entered the Red Sea after U.S. forces killed 10 Houthi fighters from Yemen and sank three of their ships. The Pentagon claims the Houthis fired at a pair of U.S. Navy helicopters that were responding to a distress call from a container ship targeted by the Houthis. Since November, the Houthis have been carrying out attacks on ships in the Red Sea to show support for Palestinians in Gaza, they say. Russian President Vladimir Putin is vowing to intensify attacks inside Ukraine after a Ukrainian attack on the Russian city of Belgorod killed at least 25 people, including five children, Saturday. More than 100 people were injured in what was one of the deadliest attacks inside Russia since Moscow invaded Ukraine 22 months ago. The attack on Belgorod came a day after a massive Russian strike on Ukraine's largest cities killed at least 41 civilians. Earlier today, Russia fired hypersonic ballistic missiles at Ukraine's two largest cities, Kyiv and Kharkiv. Four people were reportedly killed in Kyiv, another 92 injured. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of firing 170 armed drones and dozens of missiles at Ukraine since Sunday. 
In Japan, at least 48 people have died after a massive magnitude 7.6 earthquake New Year's Day. Rescue teams are still trying to reach some remote areas. The quake caused widespread damage, toppling buildings and triggering fires. In the coastal town of Suzu, as many as 1,000 homes are believed to have been destroyed. A tsunami warning was issued Monday, but it has been lifted. Earlier today, five people died aboard a Coast Guard plane that collided with a Japan Airlines plane at Tokyo's airport. The collision sparked a major fire, forcing all 379 people on board the commercial flight to evacuate. They had something like 90 seconds. The Coast Guard plane was preparing to take food to areas hit by the earthquake. In South Korea, opposition leader Lee Jae-mung is recovering after being stabbed in the neck while speaking to reporters in the city of Busan. A 66-year-old suspect has been detained. Lee Jae-mung ran for president in 2022 and narrowly lost to the conservative Yoon Suk-yeol. Lee is widely expected to run for president again in 2027. In Bangladesh, a court has sentenced Nobel Peace Laureate Mohammed Yunus to six months in jail for labor law violations, along with three of his colleagues. Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016 for his development of a microfinancing system which offers small loans to the poor. Yunus has been a vocal critic of Bangladesh's prime minister, Hasina Sheikh. Former Amnesty International head Irene Khan decried Eunice's conviction as a, quote, travesty of justice. Eunice is 83 years old. He's been granted bail during the appeals process. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, President Felix Tshisekedi has been declared the winner of the country's recent presidential election, but opposition candidates are refusing to accept his victory. The DRC's election commission said Tshisekedi received 73 percent of the vote, easily defeating his 18 challengers. On Sunday, nine opposition candidates signed a joint declaration rejecting the results and demanding a new vote. In Mexico. The Zapatistas have been holding a four-day celebration to mark the 30th anniversary of the group's 1994 uprising when they declared war on the Mexican government and took five towns in Chiapas in southern Mexico. The uprising began January 1, 1994, on the same day that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, took effect. The Zapatista National Liberation Army, or EZLN, warned NAFTA meant death to indigenous peoples. Supporters of the Zapatistas took part in this weekend's celebration and praised the group for standing up to the Mexican government. To see the organizations upholding their autonomy encourages me. It is an example of dignity. They were the only ones who dared to raise their voices, to say enough is enough, against oblivion, against regression, against death, against discrimination. In the United States, nearly 10 million low-wage workers receive raises January 1st when the minimum wage increased in 22 states. The biggest increase came in Hawaii, where the minimum wage jumped from $12 to $14 an hour. In Washington state, the minimum wage increased to $16.28 an hour, the highest rate of any state. The federal minimum wage remains at $7.25 an hour. That's the same level it's been 
for 15 years. A slew of other new state laws went into effect January 1st. New laws banning gender-affirming health care treatments for transgender youth have gone into effect in Louisiana and Idaho. But a number of states are pushing back against the wave of anti-trans laws. In Maryland, the Trans Health Equity Act went into effect, ensuring the state's Medicaid program covers gender-affirming health care. In California, a new state law offers new legal protections for people who travel to the state for abortion and gender-affirming care. In other health news, the price of insulin has gone down for millions of Americans. As of January 1st, the out-of-pocket cost of insulin has been capped at $35 a month by three of the nation's largest insulin manufacturers. Here in New York, exonerated Central Park Five member Yusuf Salam has been sworn into a seat in the New York City Council representing Harlem. Salam was one of the five black and Latino teenagers wrongfully convicted of the 1989 beating and rape of a white woman. At the time, Donald Trump called for their execution. Yusuf Salam spent seven years in jail before being exonerated when the real perpetrator confessed. The Australian journalist and documentary filmmaker John Pilger has died at the age of 84. He made over 60 documentaries, many deeply critical of U.S. and British foreign policy. Pilger reportedly extensively on Cambodia, Vietnam, East Timor, and the devastating impact of U.S. sanctions on Iraq. Over the past decade, he was a vocal supporter of the imprisoned WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. It's the courage of those who speak the truth and speak up for the truth, who dissent, who stand up to the powerful. These are our unsung heroes. Today, as he is led into court, Julian Assange is both our collective conscience and a true Australian hero. To see our special on Julian Assange, which we broadcast on January 1st, go to democracynow.org. The longtime consumer advocate, Dr. Sidney Wolf, has died at the age of 86. With Ralph Nader, he helped found the Health Research Group in 1971 as part of the consumer advocacy organization Public Citizen. Dr. Wolf spent decades fighting the Food and Drug Administration and pharmaceutical industry and is credited with helping to force 28 dangerous medications off the market. In a statement, Ralph Nader said millions of people benefited from Sid Wolf's work. Dr. Sidney Wolf last appeared on Democracy Now! in 2017. Fifty years ago, for the first time ever, this country decided that health care was a right for two groups of people, the old and the very poor. And we all hoped that shortly after that, something would happen to add more to those two vulnerable groups of people. And the only thing that's happened in 50 years is President Obama's Affordable Care Act, which added about 20 more million people and put in important provisions such as not discriminating against people because of pre-existing illness. So to roll back the clock, not only on the Affordable Care Act, but to start eroding Medicare and Medicaid, now 51 years old, is cruel, is not passionate, and is not consistent with a doctor's ethical duty to first do no harm. And the Dine Navajo activist and musician Cleve Benali. 
has died at the age of 48 in Arizona. Benali was from Black Mesa, spent years organizing against uranium mining on native land and to protect the sacred San Francisco peaks in Flagstaff, Arizona. The only, he was also the former lead singer of the indigenous punk band Blackfire. Klebanali had just published a new book titled No Spiritual Surrender, Indigenous Anarchy in Defense of the Sacred. In the book, he writes, if history is written by the conquerors, it will be unwritten by those who refuse to be conquered. Klebanali spoke to Democracy Now! in 2014 when we broadcast the show from Flagstaff, Arizona. But many of our people don't have running water, they don't have electricity, yet our lands have been exploited. We have coal-fired, three coal-fired power plants that pollute our, our air. Um, we have these abandoned uranium mines and new, new mines that are threatening the region. Um, we have fracking, hydrologic fracking, fracking that's threatening our land as well. But this isn't just an issue for here. Wherever there's an environmental crisis, there's a cultural crisis because we are people of the earth. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, as the death toll from Israel's bombardment of Gaza exceeds 22,000, we look at how South Africa's filed a case at the International Court of Justice in The Hague accusing Israel of genocide. to sustain Are you still waiting for the rain While distant cities wash it all down the drain Now that fields have turned to dust Little corporations try to live on the poisons they feed us. Little politicians follow their laws to non-existence. After all, they're just words without their violence. Klee Benali performing on Democracy Now! in 2014 when we were on the road in Flagstaff, Arizona. He said the song was for the people in Flint and Detroit, Michigan, who were denied clean water and, quote, for the people all over the world resisting corporate privatization of their water. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Uh, happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Amy. Uh, and, uh, and a welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. As the death toll from Israel's bombardment of Gaza since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel now exceeds 22,000, South Africa's filed a case at the International Court of Justice in The Hague accusing Israel of genocide and trying to, quote, destroy Palestinians in Gaza. This comes as the separate International Criminal Court is already investigating alleged war crimes committed by both Israel and Hamas. 
In its filing to the ICJ, the main judicial body for the United Nations, South Africa says, quote, the acts and omissions by Israel complained of by South Africa are genocidal in character because they're intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial and ethnical group, unquote. South Africa accused Israel of violating the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which Israel has signed on to. Israel responded by calling the charge, quote, without legal merit. The Israeli foreign ministry accused South Africa of, quote, collaborating with a terrorist group that calls for Israel's annihilation, unquote. South African's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has compared Israel's treatment of Palestinians in the occupied territories to the racist system of apartheid in his own country, which ended in 1994 after nearly half a century. In November, Ramaphosa responded to Israel's assault on Gaza by recalling South Africa's diplomats from Israel. The collective punishment of Palestinian civilians through the unlawful use of force by Israel is a war crime. The deliberate denial of medicine, fuel, food and water to the residents of Gaza is tantamount to genocide. Meanwhile, in October, South African lawmaker and the grandson of Nelson Mandela and Kosi Mandela joined a Palestinian solidarity protest in Cape Town. Palestinians are counting on each and every one of us to stand and be counted like they stood side by side with us in the trenches when we fought to liberate our country. For more, we're joined by Francis Boyle, professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. He previously applied the Genocide Convention for Bosnia and won two requests for provisional protection from the ICJ against Yugoslavia and thinks the same could apply here. His books include The Bosnian People Charged Genocide, as well as Palestine, Palestinians and International Law and World Politics, Human Rights, and International Law. Professor Boyle, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's good to have you with us in this new year, but under very serious circumstances. If you can explain why it's South Africa that's bringing this charge, and what exactly is the International uh, Court of Justice, where it fits into the world justice system, and talk about the charge of genocide. Well. Thank you very much for having me on, Amy, my best to your listening uh, audience. Uh, not to toot my own horn here, but uh, I was the first lawyer ever to win anything under the Genocide Convention from the International Court of Justice uh, that goes back to uh, 1921. I single-handedly won two world court orders for the Republic of Bosnia-Herzegovina against Yugoslavia. Uh, to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide. And based on my careful review of all the documents so far submitted by the Republic of South Africa, uh, I believe South Africa will win an order against Israel to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide uh, against the Palestinians. And then we will have an official determination 
by the International Court of Justice itself, the highest uh, legal authority in the United Nations system, that genocide is going on. And under Article 1 of the Genocide Convention, all contracting parties, 153 states, will then be obliged, quote, to prevent, unquote, the genocide by Israel against the Palestinians. Second, when the World Court gives this cease and desist order against Israel, the Biden administration will stand condemned under Article 3, Paragraph E of the Genocide Convention that criminalizes complicity in genocide. And clearly, we know that the Biden administration has been aiding and abetting Israeli genocide against the Palestinians here for quite some time. Uh, this uh, uh, has also been raised by my friends in the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, and in uh, the National Lawyers Guild in a lawsuit uh, against Biden, Blinken, and, uh, and Austin. So I believe uh, we will be able to use uh, the, the World Court order. Uh, the, right now, my sources tell me the hearing will be January 11, January 12. Based on my experience with the Bosnians, uh, we can expect an order uh, within a week. I would also say, with respect to the Biden administration, uh, they are currently in violation of the Genocide Convention Implementation Act that makes genocide a crime uh, under United States law. And again, once we uh, South Africa wins this uh, order, uh, the Biden administration also uh, will stand in violation of the Genocide Convention Implementation Act. So I believe this is where uh, we will be going uh, between now, I would say, and, and the end of this month. And it is up to all of us as American citizens to figure out and support uh, uh, what South Africa is doing at the International Court of Justice here. And Francis Boyle, uh, what's the difference between the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court, which is already considering allegations of war crimes by both Israel as well as the Palestinian militant groups? Right, Juan. The International Court of Justice was originally established back in uh, 1921, its predecessor, legal predecessor in law. Uh, and that is where I filed the uh, genocide case. I was the first lawyer ever uh, to win two orders in one such case since the World Court was founded in uh, 1921, and it was on the basis of the Genocide Convention. The International uh, Criminal Court is a separate uh, uh, international organization uh, set up in uh, 2000. The problem, one is this. Back in 2009, after Operation Cast Lead, I advised Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to accept the jurisdiction of the International Court of the International Criminal Court for Palestine, which he did. I regret to report that the International Criminal Court has not done one darn thing 
to help the Palestinians since 2009. The International Criminal Court has all the blood of the Palestinian people on its hands since 2009. And Juan, that is why uh, uh, we set up a campaign uh, to, to find a state willing to file a lawsuit at the International Court of Justice, uh, the World Court. Uh, the ICC basically uh, operates at the behest of its funders and founders and masters, which is the U.S., the NATO states, the European states, uh, etc., until their uh, expedited uh, indictment of uh, President Putin as uh, U.S. NATO lawfare against Russia, the International Criminal Court had not indicted one American, one European, one Brit, one NATO uh, citizen and one Israeli uh, and one white person. So uh, we've gone, we have a campaign now uh, to support the Republic of South Africa at the International Court of Justice. Uh, and we are asking, we're starting this campaign today. I'm part of a, a coalition. Uh, we're starting this campaign to get, today to get members of the Genocide Convention to file declarations of intervention at the World Court in support and solidarity uh, with, with South Africa uh, against Israel and in support of the uh, Palestinians. That uh, material uh, 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 hopefully Fran will go out today. Francis, I wanted to ask you, though, Joan Donahue is the president of the International Court of Justice. She previously worked in the U.S. State Department. How do you think she will approach South Africa's application? What what power does she have to shape the proceedings? That's a good question, uh, Juan. Yes, Donahue is a lifelong, career-long U.S. State Department legal apparatchik, which is how she got the job. And uh, I'm sure she's in contact right now today with the U.S. State Department giving them uh, a heads up on everything going on over there at The Hague behind the scenes. Uh, she will tow the State Department party line uh, in these proceedings. I regret to report the president does have a lot of power there uh, uh, to shape these uh, proceedings. I suspect she will use that power uh, to shape the proceedings in favor uh, of Israel. However, I have also been advised that the uh, Republic of South Africa is, as of now, nominating a judge ad hoc uh, that is their right under the uh, statute of the International Court of Justice. I, I don't have a name yet, but I would hope the uh, South African judge ad hoc uh, will do his or her best to, to try to, to keep uh, Donahue uh, straight. I want to go back to South Africa, um, who has done this genocide filing. 
In 2008, I had the opportunity to speak with the South African anti-apartheid icon, the Nobel Peace Laureate, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I caught up with him at the South African vice consul's apartment in New York right before Archbishop Tutu received the Global Citizens Circle Award. I asked him about Palestine. Would you compare the occupation of Gaza and Palestine, of Gaza and the West Bank to apartheid South Africa? I, I have to speak about what I know. I mean, uh, most people, a Jew, will usually speak about their experiences and maybe compare whatever it is that is happening with what happened um, uh, in the days of the Holocaust. For, for me, coming from South Africa and going, I mean, and looking at the at the checkpoints and and the arrogance of those young soldiers, probably scared, <laughs> maybe covering up the so their apprehension that there was there's no no way in which I couldn't say. Of course, that is that is the truth. It reminds me, it reminds me of kind of experiences uh, uh, that we underwent. So that was Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Uh, Francis Boyle, talk about the significance of it being South Africa and what it means for one state to bring a charge against another state, um, who are signatories here, and um, how binding is this? Uh, explain what happened, for example, in Bosnia. Sure. Uh well, first, the uh, connection there with uh, the late uh, great uh, Archbishop uh, Tutu, the current lead counsel now in the lawsuit for South Africa is Professor John Dugard, uh, a longtime friend of mine. Uh, Professor Dugard was one of the uh, very few courageous white professors of international law who internationally opposed the criminal apartheid system in South Africa at risk to his life. Second, later on, uh, Professor Dugard uh, became UN Special Rapporteur for uh, Palestine. I read uh, all of his reports. Uh, they are uh, excellent. Uh, Professor Dugard's heart and head uh, are in the right place with the Palestinians, and he is one of the top professors of international law uh, in the world. So there is a direct comparison between uh, the Israeli apartheid system on all the Palestinians, including Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel, and what happened in uh, apartheid uh, South Africa. Indeed, Professor Dugard has written that the uh, Israeli system of apartheid uh, against the Palestinians is worse. Uh, than the uh, apartheid that the Afrikaners applied to the uh, black people in South Africa. I was involved in the uh, struggle against uh, apartheid uh, in South Africa, and that is my assessment, uh, too. Indeed, uh, the parallels here then led me in November 2000 to call for the uh, establishment in a speech, the establishment 
of the divestment disinvestment campaign uh, against Israel for the exact same reasons we had a divestment disinvestment campaign against the criminal apartheid regime in South Africa. And then in 2005, Palestinian civil society contacted me to go in with them on establishing the Palestinian boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against Israel, against apartheid Israel, for the exact same reason we had a BDS campaign against the criminal apartheid regime in South Africa. So uh, Tutu, uh, Dugard, I, and uh, I would uh, Ramaphosa, uh, the foreign minister uh, in South Africa, uh, who's made very uh, compelling speeches, they all understand what's going on here and what's at stake. The issue of genocide in Bosnia, if you could explain for people who are not familiar um, with what happened and then what came of um, the charges at the International um, Court of Justice. Yes, well, uh, Yugoslavia exterminated about uh, 200,000 Bosnians, uh, raped about uh, 40,000 Bosnian women. I was the lawyer for all of them arguing their case at the International Court of uh, Justice, and I won these uh, uh, two orders on 8 April 1993 and 13 September uh, 1993. Until I won that uh, uh, order 8 April 1993, uh, everyone was denying that genocide was going on. Uh, And once I won that order that was massive and overwhelming in favor of the Bosnians, uh, no one could deny any more that genocide was going on. Uh, As for the uh, effectiveness, uh, when I walked out of the World Court on April 1993 uh, and won that order, I walked into the uh, foyer there uh, outside the Grand Courtroom. The whole world news media were there. And I said at the time, uh, the World Court has just determined that genocide is going on in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Under Article 1, every state party to the Genocide Convention has an obligation to prevent genocide in Bosnia. And I hereby uh, request direct military intervention by the United States and the NATO states to save the Bosnians from genocide. Later that day, the United States and NATO announced that they were instituting a no-fly zone, uh, uh, enforcing a no-fly zone uh, over Bosnia. So uh, these orders by the World Court can have consequences. And it will be up to us here in the United States to to devise the strategy for uh, consequences for the Biden administration, because we have to pressure the Biden administration to order Israel to stop the genocide. They will do what we Americans tell them to do. In Operation Cast Lead, uh, that had been going on for a period of time uh, under President Bush Jr., uh, Obama The uh, Obama people were coming into power. 
Obama uh, was about to be inaugurated. And in order not to spoil Obama's uh, inauguration, the United States government told Israel to stop Operation Castlet. So we have to understand we here in the United States of America have the power to stop this. But we have to figure out how to use the order that South Africa will win here in the United States of America. This is exactly what happened in uh, Nicaragua. You remember, uh, Amy, uh, I was involved in advising almost every peace NGO and uh, lawyer here in the United States on the uh, legal issues with respect to Reagan's war against Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala. My teacher, mentor, and friend, the late great Abe Jays at Harvard Law School, won a world court order against the Reagan administration in 1984, and then also a final judgment on the merits in 1986. We here in the United States used that world court order and the final judgment to stop Reagan's war against Nicaragua. Regretfully, uh, we have 20 seconds. Regretfully, 16,000 Nicaraguans were killed, including U.S. citizen uh, Ben Linder. But we did stop that. And I believe that with this world court order that South Africa uh, will win, we can stop what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. Francis Boyle, professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. His books include The Bosnian People Charged Genocide, Palestine, Palestinians and International Law, as well as World Politics, Human Rights and International Law. When we come back, as this pivotal election year gets underway, we speak with Ryan Grimm about how the powerful lobby group APAC is set to spend more than $100 million against progressive Congress members who are critical of Israeli human rights violations in Palestine. His new book, The Squad. Stay with us. ELN Para Todas, Todos, for Everyone, Everything by Manu Chao. This week marks the 30th anniversary of the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. It's 2024. As we move into this election year, we look now at how the powerful lobby group, APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, is set to spend more than $100 million against progressive Congress members critical of Israeli human rights violations in Palestine. 
The goal is to remove members of the squad from Congress this year, including Congress members Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, Summer Lee, and the only Palestinian-American member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib. This comes as a Data for Progress poll found two-thirds of U.S. voters support a ceasefire in Gaza, including 80 percent of Democrats. For more, we're joined by Ryan Grimm. D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. His book is just out. It's titled The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. Ryan, why don't you lay out your revelations in this book? Um, and perhaps you can start with AOC and what happened um, when she was elected. I want to play for you a clip. You write in your book about how a representative of APAC approached Democratic Congress member Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's team with an offer of $100,000 in July of 2018 to, quote, start the conversation about her views on Israel. This is the then-candidate Ocasio-Cortez being interviewed on PBS in 2018, before she was reportedly contacted by AIPAC. You, in the campaign, made one tweet or made one statement mm -hmm. that referred to um, a, a killing by Israeli soldiers of civilians in Gaza mm -hmm. and called it a massacre, which mm -hmm. became a little bit controversial. Mm -hmm. But I haven't seen anywhere. Uh, what is your position on Israel? Well, I believe absolutely in Israel's right to exist. I, I am a proponent of a two-state solution. Um, and for me, it's not—this it's, is not a referendum, I think, on the state of Israel. For me, the lens through which I saw this incident as an activist, as an organizer, if 60 people were killed in Ferguson, Missouri, if 60 people were killed in the South Bronx, unarmed, 60 people were killed in, in Puerto Rico— I just looked at that incident more through uh, through just as an incident. And to me, it would just be completely unacceptable if that happened on our shores. So that was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in 2018, before she was first elected and um, one of the four members of what's known as the squad, which is also the title of your book, Ryan Grimm. Can you take it from there, what you reveal in this book? Yeah. So and later in that uh, interview, the interviewer uh, Hoover uh, really starts to parse a lot of her words. You know, you said the word occupation. You know, you said the word Palestine. What do you mean by this? And you can see her growing even more kind of visibly kind of uncomfortable about where the conversation is heading. And she finally just taps out at the end and says, look, I'm not a geopolitical expert on this issue. This wasn't something that we talked about at my dinner table, you know, in among Puerto Rican families uh, in the in the Bronx. And she just moves on from there and, and actually stops doing interviews uh, for a little while after that, he, a, after she'd been kind of from the time of her, her win in June until then, just kind of dominating and, and getting you know, bigger and bigger interview requests, uh, you know, eventually even doing like late night shows. So then, like you said, a week later, her team gets a call uh, from somebody who says they're, they're with APAC and that they saw the interview and that they're willing to help uh, you know, educate her on the issue, start the conversation. And to start that conversation, they've already gotten commitments of you know, up to $100,000, and there would be a lot more money where that came from. Now, she didn't even consider the offer. She had plenty of uh, campaign cash coming in. It wasn't even about the campaign cash, but it did open a window for her team and for her about what Congress is like 
for so many rank and file members of Congress who didn't have her profile at that point. Because now not only are you being offered $100,000 just to start, and there's a lot more where that came from, it comes with an implicit threat. And I think that's what you want to get into later. If you don't take the money, that money will still be spent, but it will be spent against you instead. And Ryan, could you talk about, uh, and you do so in the book, APAC's role in uh, in purging the Democratic Party of any uh, of any uh, potential uh, uh, candidates or office holders who uh, who don't toe the line when it comes to uh, Israel? So the same month uh, that the squad was sworn into office, that included Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, is January 2019. Uh, the, the, the super PAC Democratic Majority for Israel was stood up with this splashy New York Times profile. It, it was kind of it was affiliated with APAC. It was founded by uh, Mark Melman, uh, who is an APAC advisor who had led APAC's effort to undo uh, Barack Obama's Iran deal. He's also or he was at the time a consultant to Yair Lapid, who, as you know, is the uh, head of the Yesh Atid party, eventually actually became while uh, he was Melman's client, prime minister of Israel. So he's wearing multiple hats. So he founds this super PAC, DMFI, which then kind of does APAC's work in the 2020 and 2020 uh, in the 2020 cycle. And they're built basically explicitly to to stop the expansion of this faction within the Democratic Party that feels willing uh, to criticize Israel. Uh, in, in May 2021, the last time there was a major war on Gaza, the squad and a number of other House Democrats you know, went to the House floor uh, denouncing Israel's attack on Gaza. And that was sort of an alarm bell uh, for AIPAC. And so AIPAC itself then uh, after that launched its own super PAC after DMFI had spent you know, millions itself. And in that cycle, the 2021-22 cycle, spent more than $30 million. Now they're looking to spend you know, significantly more this cycle. And you also say that the rise of the squad and the rise of the counter-revolutionary forces has been simultaneous. Could you elaborate on that? Because obviously Donald Trump never tires of criticizing the squad as if they are in charge of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it was really remarkable to to go back and kind of re-report this story, the arc of kind of the, starting with, the, say, the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2015-16 up, up through today to see just how central this question of Israel-Palestine has been, you know, to the kind of pushback and the reaction to the rise of the squad the entire time. You know, the Democrats in, in 2018, if you remember, they ran against, uh, they ran against Trump, uh, they ran against his wall, his xenophobia, his Muslim ban. And much of the first six months of the Democratic majority in 2019 was spent with Democrats, sometimes joined by Trump, sometimes not, coming after Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib, you know, for, for various transgressions in tweets or uh, speeches or otherwise. And it, it, it really kind of, contr- you know, dictated and determined what the entire kind of progressive wing was doing. And so oftentimes you'll have the organization Justice Democrats or members of the squad say, you know, why are you spending so much time focusing on Israel-Palestine? And the answer would be, they're not. It's actually it's actually the reaction. They're kind of they're kind of forced to. And so that the amount of spending that was done against them and that continues to be done against them kind of forged them into a, a cohesive political formation that might not actually have existed 
otherwise. But so in the 2022 cycle, like you said, you know, that's when they spent you know, millions against not just Nina Turner, the most high profile example that they kept out, out of Congress, uh, but also across the country uh, going after uh, progressives who were critical of Israel, but also were progressive because, you know, the, the same kind of uh, hedge fund, private equity executives, uh, you know, baseball team owners that are funding APAC and DMFI also have the same kind of interests as the uh, as any you know, major business owner uh, would. So the, the same agenda that is, uh, you know, that is that that forms kind of the squad's criticism of Israel also, you know, there's there's support of uh, Green New Deal, Medicare for all, you know, higher, you know, closing you know, tax loopholes for the wealthy. So it's kind of a, a, a bonus that you, that you kind of can align your class interests with this uh, fight against, uh, you know, Palesti- Palestinian rights. So if you can talk more, Ryan Grimm, about this election year, about the hundred million dollars, who's involved with that, about the targeting of the squad, the squad plus, you know, more people who are allied with the squad have been elected since then. And also the role of Mark Penn and Burson Marsteller. Right. So tw- 2022 was the first time in its history that APAC did its own super PAC previously uh, it, it had, you know, given directly to campaigns, or its members had given directly to campaigns, and uh, DMFI had done a super PAC kind of affiliated with with APAC, but not straight from them. 2022 was the first time they did that, and they came through, like, with, like I said, more than more than 30 million dollars in some races. You know, spending more than five million dollars, uh, they they spent millions against Summer Lee uh, in in the Pittsburgh race in the in the last you know a month of the campaign. Uh, but there was enough kind of pushback from a, an organized group of progressive super PACs and also small donors that she was able to just barely, <clears throat> that she was able to just barely hang on. And so in 2022, they really tried to kind of constrain the, the growth of the, of the squad and, and squad aligned factions within the party. This cycle, they're really trying to shrink them. Like you said, they, there's been reporting uh, that you know, there there have been offers of you know twenty million dollars to two different candidates to try to run against Rashida Tlaib. They've successfully recruited candidates to run against uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, Corey Bush uh, ha- has a challenge, Ilhan Omar ha- has a challenge. So now they're coming kind of directly at them. Uh, now Mark Mark Penn and Nancy Jacobson are also kind of main characters uh, in this book as well, as along with along with Mark Penn's protege Josh Gottheimer who's a congressman from North Jersey, who's sort of like the chief antagonist of the squad. Uh, and they have uh, they have raised you know tens of millions of dollars over the years for this organization. Uh, no labels also from hedge fund executives, you know, pr- private equity folks, you know, football team owners that, uh, you know, Home, home Depot uh, CEOs, that 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 kind of crowd. Uh, they 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 spe- they try to, you know, uh, present themselves as this kind of non-aligned uh, centrist organization. Nancy Jacobson has said, you know, APAC is one of her in uh, one of the organizations that she works most closely with. And of course, famously now they're trying to recruit a, a Joe Manchin type figure to run as a as a quote unquote kind of independent uh, in the presidential campaign, which presumably would uh, be to the benefit of Trump. Uh, you mentioned Josh Gottheimer, could, uh, the congressman from New Jersey. Could you talk about his history before he got into Congress? Yeah, it's it's it is an interesting history because not only does it have this kind of standard kind of pro-Israel uh, activism, uh, but he he worked with you know with Mark with Mark Penn uh, for many years, uh, and Mark Penn 
did a lot of his business with uh, with Saudi Arabia. And that gets to kind of a a, a creation of a political uh, uh, alliance in Washington that didn't get a lot of publicity over the years, which is kind of the, the, the teaming up of the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Those two countries still don't even you know, recognize Israel. But in Washington, the three of them were spending enormously uh, basically to counter Iran and and to counter Iran. Uh, they and, and also, of course, to you know, push back on kind of any you know, you know, climate climate agenda that might you know, get in the way of where uh, their, their fossil fuel interests lay. And, and that often meant targeting kind of the, the left flank of the Democratic Party. And so uh, Josh Gottheimer kind of became the, the kind of lead uh, antagonist against particularly Rashida Tlaib uh, and, and Ilhan Omar, uh, pre, you know, just repeatedly pushing for, you know, censure resolutions, uh, going on, you know, cable news re- regularly to, to denounce his colleagues and encouraging other Democrats to then also denounce them. Uh, teaming up with Hakeem Jeffries to to do a kind of uh, a, a super PAC that was aimed at kind of going after them uh, and going and going after kind of squad aligned candidates as as well. So th- that that's really the kind of nexus of this civil war that's going on inside the uh, House Democrats. We have about two minutes to go, Ryan, and I'm wondering if you can talk about what most shocked you in the research for your <laughs> book, The Squad. I think it was the the sheer amount of money uh, that was involved and just how dominant it been, because we, we can say the numbers over and over again, 30 million, 40 million, 100 million dollars. But what doesn't quite come through is how that influences not just the races where money is spent, but also where it's not spent. And so I, I heard of so many different conversations that would be held among you know consultants and campaigns that that were worried that APAC or DMFI was going to start spending millions of dollars in their race. And they would meet, they'd have a conference call and they'd figure out, okay, how do we stave this off? And so this is without APAC even spending a dime. And they would say, well, let's, you know, the easiest thing we can do is let's just post, I stand with Israel. And some candidates would just do that. And then others uh, would reach out to DMFI. Uh, John Fetterman, uh, his campaign did this. Others did it as well. And say, what, what do we need to do? Like, what kind of policy positions do we need to publicly have so that you're going to stay out of this race? Not that you're going to fund us, but that you're not going to fund our opponents. And that really, it, to a shocking degree, constrained you know, what Democratic candidates were willing to say when it came to criticizing Israel. Ryan Grimm, we want to thank you so much for being with us, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. Um, Ryan's new book is called The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. And we'll also link to your articles at The Intercept as you continue to cover this issue. For those who didn't get to see Democracy Now! on January 1st, um, you can go to democracynow.org and see the Belmarsh Tribunal excerpts of it, uh, looking at the case of Julian Assange, whose final appeal goes um, before a London court on February 20th and 21st. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresena. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for the first edition of Democracy Now!